I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Ever found yourself in the fantasy of a true love romance thinking that other person can complete me? Or feel closest to someone in the heat of a fight hankering for that sweet, sweet makeup sex? Ever shove a compliment aside doubting its sincerity, fawning a bashful rebuttal to avoid accepting it? Yeah, me either. If you've been nodding along though, then you are familiar with the complexities of the human psyche, from golden shadows to the pitfalls of codependency. I'm joined today by Vanessa Bennett, a holistic psychotherapist who is no stranger to navigating through the waters of codependency, ego narratives, and the nuanced stance between accepting praise and wrestling with our own ability to receive it, called golden shadows. Together, we're going to peel back the layers of societal imprints that pedal us towards looking for wholeness in others, explore the all-too-familiar territory of relationship ruptures and repair, and delve into the why we often block the opportunities to be validated, even though we crave it. We explore if it's possible to witness our own light without dimming it, to embrace love without losing ourselves, and to meet conflict without taking it personal. Shit, that sounds fun. Vanessa Bennett is a licensed psychotherapist, clinical entrepreneur, mental health content creator, and author of the best-selling relationship book, It's Not Me, It's You. Her nuanced approach integrates years of studies and practice in depth, Buddhist, and yoga psychology. She co-hosts the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast, leads soul-based retreats and workshops, and creates and facilitates content for nonprofit and corporate trainings, events, and conferences. Get ready as we challenge the stories we tell ourselves, explore what it truly means to be human, whole, and authentically connected. Let's do this. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us on the Gently Used Human podcast. It's so fun to have you. You thank are you. a delight of perverse entertainment and wisdom. I'm going to put that in my bio. <laughs> I would hope so. I think my super skill is helping people write their bios. I think, yeah. I, I mean, I already feel it. So, I mean, isn't that the job of a therapist to reflect back what we can't necessarily see in ourselves? It's called like shadow workish things. I mean, I guess that would be shadow work unless we feel like my amazingness is in my shadow, which, well, I guess it could be. I could, oh, it could be. Let's talk about it. Is yeah. it? I mean, maybe. I think those of us who have a hard time like accepting compliments and standing in our own light, sure, it could be in the shadow. Okay. Well, then let me shine some light on your awesomeness <laughs> and we will dive into what that's like to sort of have positive things about us in shadow because I think that's actually so common for many mm -hmm. of us. Yeah. We talk about like our patterns, like the behaviors being in shadow, but I think we're really actually hitting on something in the first 20 seconds that's actually more <laughs> Let's potent. go there. Let's go there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's let's dive into that right away. So it's called golden shadow. There's a, oh. there's a term for it. Yeah. So we think of shadow, we think of like the negative aspects of ourself that we're like ashamed of. But there's also a lot of shame, especially culturally, there's a lot of shame to accept those like positive aspects of ourself too. So it is a Jungian term. The first time I heard it was Robert Johnson called it the golden shadow. I'm, I'm sure it's been used prior to that, but it has to do with the positive qualities of yourself that you kind of relegate to the basement as well. Wow. Do you find that very common when you're working with clients as well? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, how often are you seeing somebody and you're like, you're not seeing what I'm seeing, right? Like, oh, all the time. Yeah. In relationships and, so, and, and therapy sessions and mm-hmm. podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think just like we think about the negative aspects of shadow, you know, we put things in our shadow to keep ourselves safe, to kind of create a persona, right? To mm-hmm. be accepted. So wouldn't it make sense that it's the same thing for the positive attributes? Like I need to keep this in the shadow because it doesn't feel safe to really like stand in my power. It doesn't feel safe to really embody or embrace all my amazingness. I'm going to be called full of myself. I'm going to be called arrogant. I'm going to be called conceited, whatever the thing is. And so I need to kind of tuck that away too so I can be more modest, especially with women. The modesty thing I get, I see a lot. Don't take up too much space. Be demure. Be kind. Be quiet. Don't be angry, right? And so for a lot of women, anger, if we're talking the quote, quote unquote negative shadow, a lot of anger is in the shadow. So I think it's really just any aspect of ourselves that we don't feel we can, we're allowed to embody. I mean, what a sad state of being that we can't embrace or embody our own positive values and attributes and strengths because they get manipulated and turned around by other people and used against us. Oh, mm-hmm. that, that is some fucked up weaponizing of what people's values are or what they the values that they bring into the world are. Well, I also think it's a, it's a really good indicator of the values of our culture, right? Because- If you think about the reason why the shadow is created is in order to create a persona, which the persona is all about how does society see me and accept me. If we look at the fact that at least in the West, we all have very typical personas, like our personas are very similar. It has to do with what our culture finds acceptable, right? And so if our culture finds it acceptable in men, for example, to be angry and show their emotions through fucking, right? Then- what happens is oh, we don't swear in this show. Oh well, I swear. I, I sorry. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that is that is not in my shadow. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Go on. So fucking. Yes. You're talking about fucking. We're talking about fucking. Yeah. You know, that's my persona is going to be somebody who womanizes or somebody who has a lot of sex and somebody who talks about it a lot and the notches on the bedpost and it becomes part of who I am, right? Even if that doesn't feel like aligned with myself. And then, you know, you could look at it with women too, again, with like rage. Like if the culture says that that's a shameful thing, then I'm not going to on the surface feel anger and instead it's going to bubble up in other ways. Now, I think about one other layer to, it's really hard for me not to say the golden shower. I'm not a (laughs) 12-year-old. It's just, it's my own little dyslexia of language that I'm like golden, golden something. And then I just put the second word in. This is my gift to the world is my inability and my language challenges, my language difficulties. That is a gift. My, My golden shadow. There, I did it. it. My golden shadow. And now we'll see if that keeps. So, you know, another aspect of the golden shadow that I think about is not just the perception that other people might weaponize it against us, but our own inability to absorb it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there's also a component when you say like taking a compliment It's like there's a wall there sometimes, not necessarily with you, but with many people, which I call like a validation block. Mm. And when the block isn't there, it stimulates what I call validation reflex, which is Mm. like this deep sense of being seen. Yeah. On like a cellular level and everything just goes, it relaxes. Mm. Well, what about when somebody is is scared of that? Like what about if somebody, the feeling of like, I don't want to be seen. Like being seen is too terrifying, right? And too much. And then I guess it would play into that too, is like, let me block it so that you can't ever really see me. 
Oh, yeah. Those of us who've been hurt, which is probably everyone of us, us, (laughs) all of us, I mean, have built some type of pause mechanism because if there's only one drawbridge of information coming in and out, we're going to pull it up if we've been hurt. And it's not so easy to let it back down to let the gold come back in or the good come back in. It's hard to discern the mechanism, so to speak, or it's hard to identify as quickly of like, is this good or is this bad? It's more the the primal mechanism is just set, like the drawbridge is up, or as I like to say, like the windows are closed. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's right. So we protect ourselves from ever potentially feeling that feeling of hurt or disappointment again by just creating this kind of narrative, right? That we aren't worthy. We aren't lovable. I mean, I I like to talk about it with clients of this idea of the ego will create a story, right? And obviously the ego's sole job is to protect us, right? Protect itself, really. And so if my ego story is I'm unlovable, I'm bad, I'm shit, all these things, then I always say it's like the ego will do whatever it can to defend that mm. story. Yeah. Because what the ego cannot tolerate is being wrong. Even if being wrong means that it's actually like, no, you are lovable, doesn't matter. The ego is like, I can't be wrong. And so I have to defend against the belief that I actually am unlovable and I'm going to stick with that story. And I'm going to find all these opportunities in my life, in relationships that are just going to prove to me that I am unlovable. And I'm going to like seek that out as like reassurance, right? Or confirmation. Oof, that just like hurts to hear it. It's like, it hurts my human nature to know how true that is. And the fact that we do it anyways, mm-hmm. re- despite the consequences of how much it's hurting us. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, like we build stories as an organizing principle. So we have these primal experiences like hurt, you know, our protective mechanism. And then a story is a container. It helps us organize mm-hmm. these primal, very chaotic inner experiences and puts it in a way that we can identify it and come back to it. It's much easier to do that than take 10 minutes, feel into the inner chaos or into the inner sensations and feelings and be with it. I feel like even those of us who have done a lot of self-reflection work, I mean, I do it all the time. I still do it. You jump so quickly to the story. It's instantaneous. I mean, I God, I feel like I've got tons of Tons of years under my belt of building in that pause. And even that, I mean, it's fascinating how fast I jumped to the see. Remember, I told you this. We knew this about ourselves, or we knew this about this person, or we knew this about this scenario. Do I get lost in that story, or do I have the capability of pulling myself out of it and being like, whoa, there you go again? Take a breath, do what you just said, sit with it for a minute. What's the felt sensation going on in your body? Pause the chatter because the chatter is just trying to defend against feeling the shitty feelings. Yeah. What's wild is when we are still operating from what what I call like the empty story, meaning like we have processed the emotional underpinning of it. We have metabolized it, yet we're still operating from the narrative or the story that we created to help organize it. And we're creating a false feeling that's not actually there anymore by operating in that story. Why do you think we do that? The false, Why the do false, we think? yeah. I think it's part of our identity. It hears that story again. It reminds me about how much I'm a victim in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's like, oh, the victim mentality, the victim story came out of the fact that I was abused or hurt. 
And I have done a lot of work, and I'm, I'm talking about my own experience. I have done a lot of work to release the trauma, the holding, the energetic sort of holding around that abuse. And so when I go back to the narrative, I'm operating from it as though that trauma hasn't been released hmm. when it, in fact it has. Almost like an addiction, maybe? Like oh, there's an totally addictive an addiction. quality? Yeah. 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 It's absolutely part of like in my work when I talk about an addiction and drama, like one of the stages of healing is releasing or having a funeral for that, for the narratives we've created, for the identity that is being supported by those narratives. Because there's a way we will keep returning to something that's not actually there anymore by defaulting back to the stories we know that are so familiar. Yeah. And I also think too, it's we have so much shame around defaulting back. I think I, <laughs> I, I hear this so often. You know, I say to clients all the time, yeah, you will feel that way. Yeah, you will replay that story. Yeah, you will go back there again. Like, you know, let's just, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like when I talk about parenting and it's so funny, my partner hates when I say this, but I'm always like, we're all going to fuck up our kids. He's always like, oh, why do you say it like that? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I don't think it's shaming. I think it's liberating to just be like, you know what? Best intentions, like it's going to happen, you know? And I say the same thing with clients. Like, you're going to do that thing again. You're going to think that thing again. It's going to happen. So just know that now. And as you go into it, you go in with that awareness of like, oh, there that is again. Mm. Oh, hello. I remember you. But there's distance in that. I'm yeah. not now consumed in it. I'm outside of it and I'm seeing it happen, but I'm not beating myself up for it. It's like how many times you have clients that come in and are like, I've already done this work. Mm. I've done this already. I've processed this already. Why am I here again? And you're like, well, because you're human and that's what we do. <laughs> It's extremely humanizing to identify that and to de-shame the mm -hmm. fact that we return. And you're so right because there's a stage in healing, well, even maybe pre-healing or pre-change, which we're just engrossed in it. Mm. We're operating absolutely from the defense responses, from the protective responses. We're operating from it without mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. And then there's these stages of awareness. And so it's like in those stages of awareness – we suddenly go, oh, I've returned back to here. There's something wrong with me. Yes. But that's actually part of the healing process. We yes. have to go through layer and layer and layer of awareness to be like, so it's not actually that we're defaulting and returning. We're just more aware of it in a way that's actually a sign of progressive healing. I love that way of looking at it. Like it's progressing, right? And it's yeah. because ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about like full embodiment of the thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Because you can't learn something cognitively. That doesn't mean that you've embodied it, right? No. But full embodiment, there are layers and layers. I mean, think about how many layers in just your body, right? Yeah. Your cells, your organs, your blood. I mean, all the things. It's like when you think about what it takes to truly embody something, it's a process. Yeah, you're going to ping pong. I, I also, I think about this, the way that I talk about extremes. I talk about this with mm -hmm. clients a lot where the example I can give that's like the easiest is boundaries, right? Somebody comes in and they're like, I have no boundaries. I don't know how to say no. And so we work on it and we talk about it and we start to lay the foundation. What I've seen so often is then they'll swing the pendulum. And so suddenly it's like, bam, bam, wall, wall, fuck you. No, I'm not doing that, you know? And they're like, am I getting this wrong? You know, this doesn't feel right. And I'm like, well, what happens is it's very common for us. And I, I see a lot of shame around this too, for us to swing the pendulum whenever we're learning kind of something new, right? And what I always say to people is, 
you have to understand that what our psyche will do is like, okay, if I'm on the side of like, I have no boundaries, like they're diffuse. Eh, that doesn't feel right, right? I don't like the way that feels. Whoosh. Okay, now I'm over here. Bam, bam, wall, wall. Oh, I don't really like that either. Now I can move into kind of more of a, a center space or what that middle ground feels like. But I wouldn't know what middle ground even was if I didn't have the edges to push against, yeah, right? And so it's, it's again, it's a process of embodiment. It's like, I got to know what that feels like in my body in order to back my way into what a healthier middle would be. Yeah. That's the Goldilocks rule of therapy yes. or healing. Yes. Is like, ooh, I got to sit on this chair, which is really hard. And then I got to go sit on that chair that's really soft. And then I'm like, oh, then I start to really identify if I didn't have it in my childhood, what is my actual comfort? Mm. Sometimes I need these extremes if I wasn't given the foundations of something like comfort, safety, witnessing, validation in our early experience. So we kind of have to build extremes. I have an image slash story that just bubbled up to the surface and I want to like, I want to throw it in here and I want to see where throw you go it. with it. Okay. Okay. Because it feels, it feels resonant. Otherwise, I don't think my psyche would have just brought it up. So this is a ridiculous story and this is not about pain or suffering, but it's for sure connected to something in childhood as everything is. So I had a pair of white canvas vans. Nice. Okay. And I had them for like five years, beat to shit, the most comfortable shoes. Finally, I was like, okay, it's time to retire them. They're like the bottoms peeling off. So I go to buy a new pair, same shoes. And I'm like, oh, let's get the leather ones this time. Let's like change it up. The biggest mistake, the most uncomfortable blisters, tight, no matter how much I tried to beat them up and get them in, whatever. And my partner for like eight months has been like, just buy a new pair of the fucking canvas ones. And I'm like, but I can't. I spent the money on these ones and they're brand new. And I feel like I'm ungrateful or like I have to keep suffering and wear it because I made that choice. So I have to keep doing this, right? And he's like, they're $40. Like, just buy a new pair. <laughs> I have to tell you, Sky, it took me eight months. I just <gasps> finally bought a new pair. Yesterday, I put them on my feet and I was like, oh my God, these are butter. These are so amazing. Why did I wait so long? <laughs> oh my God. Please analyze that for me. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, the gently used human brought to you by Vans. <laughs> If only, right? <laughs> you can get a direct affiliate link through either of our websites. <laughs> but no. just not for the leather ones, only for the not canvas Not for the leather ones, ones, only for the canvas ones. So funny because the therapist in me would go one direction, but the friend in me was like going, I want to talk about canvas versus leather <laughs> and textiles. Yeah. I mean, I, I like... Well, in other ways, but just maybe not my shoes. I don't know, but there's something there. Like, why did it take me so long to just buy myself damn shoes, you know? I mean, is that a familiar experience? That's, that is the therapist question. Is of that course. a familiar experience? I think, I think it is. I think it's like silly and it's, it's showcased in this like silly example, right? And I think it's yeah. so, obviously it's so much deeper. Yeah. I mean, are we going there on this, Go, on this podcast? Oh, okay. So let us know, like, in what way is it familiar to put aside your own experience, delight, pleasure, melting butter experience for something else that is uncomfortable, that is not supporting you? That's practical. That? And it's practical. I chose this, so I need to suffer through mm -hmm. it. I made this mm -hmm. choice. 
I hear that as the script that you return back to, too. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's a script and then there's an action. And the script you keep coming back to is, like, I made this choice, so I have to suffer through it. Yep. And yeah, and then I think there, I think there's some money stuff there too. I mean, growing up, like I didn't have a ton mm-hmm. of money, but I feel like this is, I hope this is helpful for listeners because it popped up when I was thinking <laughs> about this idea of feeling into the extremes. And I thought, how much more of a tangible feeling into could I have than the actual feeling on my feet of the delicious comfort versus like hell that I was walking around in every day? There was a sniff sniff of, of what people in the industry call codependency here. <laughs> Please. <laughs> The flag I fly. There's a flag. What does that flag look like? I I have to design it. I don't know. It's not a freak (laughs) flag. I can tell you that. It's more of like a controlling flag. But oh, let's come back, and I I have a feeling we'll we'll find the core theme here in a bit. But like, let's talk about codependency because I find it so interesting. Because when I've heard clients come in and ask me, like, "Am I codependent?" I read something on Instagram. Which is my favorite line of all time. Of all and time. if you're listening, Instagram is not a great place to diagnose yourself from or TikTok or, I mean, it's really popular to self-diagnose now. I mean, fuck going to school for seven years to do it. Now yeah. you can just watch a TikTok video. And it's convincing. There's a way in which the short messages on like social media are really convincing. I have gone on the said social media and I was like, wait, do I have a disorder when I read Mm -hmm. this? And I was like, oh, there's a way to universalize language even within a subsect of things that still makes it be like, oh, that could be me. That is probably me. Yeah, I'm finding, (laughs) no, I'm finding that a lot with ADHD. I've been on a Mm. bit of like a a journey with that around with like myself. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh shit. Like if I'm, according to TikTok and Instagram, I am fully fledged (laughs) ADHD. (laughs) Now, I I mean, and I'm also a trained therapist. So like I'm looking at this going, oh shit, this is actually really convincing. And also, is it true? And so even I straddle the line. It's hard. And because there is something about, again, it's a story. It's a container. It's an Mm. organizing principle to have a diagnosis. Yes. It's, I remember when I was a kid and my sister and I had very similar learning disabilities and mental stuff. Mm -hmm. And she really loved the diagnosis. And Mm. I absolutely hated it. I was repulsed by it. I wouldn't talk about it. I was like, no, the diagnosis isn't me. And for her, it was like, it was really an identifier helpful. and a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an organizing principle. And we have different career paths, but she works in a career that does work with, you can only work with her if there's a diagnosis. She's a special education teacher. Where I turned into a, this humanistic therapist that threw the DSM out the window and right. was like, fuck your diagnosis and your right. organizing principle. Let's dive into the chaos of yep. or the, the what's underneath, the primordial ooze of experience underneath the surface. Primordial ooze. I'm going to use that. I like that. <laughs> As somebody who also threw the DSM out the window and feels very similarly, and I'm I'm very kind of anti-label in in many ways. I do look at codependency, I think, and I talk about codependency a little bit different than most people that I've experienced in our field do, more so because I think we're all codependent. I actually don't think it's like a- Are you calling me codependent? I am. I am. Oh my God. 
Oh my God, I have an organizing <laughs> principle of the day. But I, I, think it's more, it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's more like we're a codependent society, right? Okay. So okay. it's less about here's a diagnosis and more like mm-hmm. it's a lens through which we have been taught to view all relationships. And so it's impossible mm-hmm. for us through the Western lens that we look to say we don't relate to other people in a codependent way because we do. We all do. And so- totally. There's like a little bit of a nuance there in the way that I say like, yeah, we're all codependent. It's like, I'm not saying like, oh, we're all bipolar or we all have NPD. It's like, no, we're. Mm-hmm. this is the society we live in. It's the air we breathe, right? That has, I've gotten a lot of pushback on that. And I can understand why, because again, it's like what you and I were talking about, this kind of diagnosis concern. But I think it's like, it's actually liberating in terms of when you look at the way society grooms us to be codependent in relationships. You're able to give yourself that distance again and pull back and be like, oh shit, I do this, 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 this thing that doesn't serve me and is unhealthy in my relationships because it's what I was taught, right? And so it gives you that like that distance. It's not personal. And now I can start to like tackle it and work on these things because I'm not so mired in the like, oh, I'm fucked up. It's like, no, that's mm-hmm. just what you were taught, right? It's how you were mm-hmm. taught to relate. And generationally, and if we look at why and who it serves under kind of the patriarchal, capitalistic, white supremacist construct that we live in, codependent relationships essentially serve a purpose, right? They keep people small. They keep people anxious. They keep people addicted to drama. They keep people, right? And so if we are all of those things and we are restless in our relationship and we are constantly seeking outside of ourselves for wholeness, which means either to another person, to stuff that we buy, right? We stay part of the system and we never look around and go, why am I fucking miserable? Why am I constantly fucking anxious? Why am I having a hard time building a sense of self? Oh, this is a societal thing. And I live in this society. So of course, that's why I'm I'm like that. Well, you've sold me. I'm codependent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and this is, I want to go back because you're defining codependency in a way that's really important Mm. where- you know, even in the language, I, I have people who've asked me, they're like, am I codependent? So going back to that Instagram mm-hmm. story of, and, and client story, of I feel like I'm dependent on my partner to cook meals and mm-hmm. bring home money. I was like, I think you're getting the idea of dependence is there, but codependence is actually meaning something much more specific yep. and sometimes broader, which is like, in the absence of me, I depend on you to identify, define, fill me. Yeah. Right. And that's right. that's very different. Well, and I think too, what, what we're talking about here is like codependence versus interdependence in relationships, right? And I think the guiding light, the kind of North Star for all of us in our relationships should be interdependence, but, or, and we've got to be able to also see the codependent ways in which we're functioning in order to even have a shot at moving toward interdependence, right? So the way that I describe codependency, like at its easiest kind of absolute core is just, if you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good, right? So my emotional state is based on somebody else's emotional state, my sense of self, my sense of worthiness, my sense of that's all based outside of myself. And so 
when you use that as like the easiest kind of filter, it's really easy actually to look at your relationship and be like, oh shit, I can see where I do that, right? I don't like it when other people are upset and so I try to fix it for them. I don't set boundaries because I'm uncomfortable when other people are upset with me, right? Like once you start to see all the ways, the behaviors that manifest from codependency and you look at it through that lens of you're good, I'm good, you're not good, I'm not good, you're like, oh, oh shit, there it is. Right. Yeah. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is uh, one of the most incredible resources for body based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and the Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab. And so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. There's this idea of, that I'm controlling others as opposed to caring for myself. I'm controlling mm-hmm. others as a means of existing so that they stay with me or that they know of my existence or they fill me or whatever it takes. To be an to attachment. Not be, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. To not be alone. And it's there's such a overlap here between addiction mm-hmm. and a sense of one of the principles of addiction is that there is a void. And I fill that void with something and we become dependent on filling that void and often or sometimes it's another person or as you said objects or substances and we become hooked because we are reliant so much on that outside force and it keeps covering up the fact of just how empty we mm. are how we actually need to ultimately be filling that void with the resurrection of ourself yes with amen. the return of ourself Well, and this is why I always say that codependency is really the only socially sanctioned addiction out there. All addictions serve the same purpose. Like one person's people pleasing is another person's Jack and Coke. They actually serve the same purpose. It's to soothe, it's to numb, it's to hide, right? It's to not feel discomfort. And people as an addiction are just socially sanctioned. You know, we see it in all of our media. You know, again, that's why I say it's cultural. You complete me. You're my other half. You're actually looked at as less than unless you're partnered in our society, especially women, right? And so when you look at it through that lens, it's like, of course that's socially sanctioned. But shopping is an addiction. Social media is an addiction. Porn can be an addiction. It doesn't matter what the thing is. You know, they're all serving the same purpose. I also think that lends to... The stigma and the way that we look at substance abuse in this culture, right? It's like we point the fingers at them, air quotes, like there's something wrong with them as a way to not have to look at ourselves, right? And so if we can other 
this group of people who have just happened to turn to substances as their thing to numb and to fill that void, then we don't have to look at the fact that we're actually doing the same shit just in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Deflection yeah. is fun. Yes, it is. It's how we live sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know there's a song by, I think it's, it's Sophie Holen called Codependent. And I, and oh I God, wanted to no, read you. I need to know this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to read you the lyrics. Please. I was hoping we could come up with the, the melody for it. Oh, God. <laughs> what's, like, what's your favorite genre of, <laughs> of karaoke before oh, we karaoke? get started? Oh, karaoke? I mean... Or music that you okay, like to sing. Okay, because karaoke is very different. Because my karaoke is go-to is Disney. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I'm like a Disney, Disney princess We're going to come back to that because I know... In your writing and in and the and what you talk about is like there is no true love like that like true love bullshit. So the fact that you <laughs> sing Disney to which we all adopted that fucked up ideology of love from ooh girl give me that hypocritical <laughs> yummy yummy. <laughs> There's a lot of layers there that I'm sure my analysts can unpack. <laughs> all right, we're gonna go back to Sophie's song called Codependent. Okay, do <laughs> in the it. meantime. <laughs> All right. Okay. So it goes like this. If I feel the most me when I'm with someone else, am I made of nothing when I'm all by myself? Oh, wait. I just like felt that in my bones. (laughs) Oh, should I read it again? Do it again. Yeah. Okay. I really want to do this in your Disney karaoke style right now, (laughs) but I'm resisting every urge. (laughs) If I feel... Okay. Okay. If I feel the most me when I'm with someone else, am I made of nothing when I'm all by myself? If I only love who I am when I'm reflected in your eyes, does love start and end with you? And if you go, will I start to despise? Who I am, who am I? Who would I be if our love wilted and died? Because I built my world around the thought of you and I'm fighting off my doubt. But when you go home, I'm made of nothing. I'm nothing but alone. Wow. There's more, but I think we'll pause yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck. <laughs> what I appreciated about this song is I would imagine there's something universal in the experience of just the experience we have at some point in a relationship. And I don't even mean a romantic relationship. It can be with a friend, a parent of like that seeing ourselves through the reflection of their eyes. I mean, we started off the podcast this way. I reflected something I experienced of you back to you. Mm-hmm. And in all reality, this is also how our sense of self is formed, is through the reflection of others. It doesn't just happen in this like vacuum of we just grow into ourselves. Right. There's also a social self, a self that's Mm -hmm. reflected by other people that then gets internalized. If you say I'm funny, I'm going to internalize that and I'm going to believe I'm funny. Or if you laugh at my jokes, Mm -hmm. I'm going to know I'm funny. You're reflecting me back to me. And so there's this like, there's this tension I find of going back to the lyrics. If I only love who I am when I'm reflected in your eyes, does love start and end with you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of rub or like the the point that I get a lot of conversation around when I have these conversations around codependency mm-hmm. is like, so you're basically telling me I don't need anybody. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not what I'm not advocating for is hyperindependence, right? Because hyperindependence yeah. and codependency yeah. are just two sides of the same coin. What I am saying though is that for and we're gonna go real like depth kind of 
we'll go we'll go depth for a second. Bring it. I, I brought my goggles. <laughs> One might say, and like kind of more the depth perspective or more like spiritual psychology perspective might say that our original wounding is our separation from source. So when we are born, mm. our separation from source, and we essentially spend the rest of our life attempting to reconnect to source, right? One would hope that we have mothers or a mothering figure that could mirror back to us our goodness and our worthiness and our wholeness as kind of a, a jumping off point into adulthood, where we then continue our journey into reconnection to source, right? Many of us did not get that. And for a lot of women, it's no fault to the mother, right? They had their own problems. They got their own agendas. This is where you get the whole, like, they did the best they could with what they had. Yeah, some of them are assholes. Let's also put that out there too. But for a myriad of reasons, they were not able to give us that sense of wholeness. And so we spend a lifetime looking and seeking that sense of wholeness in other people, right? And this is where you'll see a lot of what happens in relationships is they become very parental. You know, like I am seeking for you to give me what actually the only other person in my life would have been able to give me as a parent. And so, so often this recovery, air quotes from codependency, is a lot of reparenting work. And it's not that we do it in a vacuum. Like, of course, we do it in loving container with other people, but I can't expect that from other people because that's actually the job of a parent. And whether it's a friend or a romantic partner, like they are not my parent. And also let's say that like when we lose ourselves in love, that's an amazing feeling. It feels like a balm to the soul. Again, going back to like the original wounding of separation from source, it feels like a balm to the soul because I feel complete for the first time in my life. But it's temporary because I can't find my completeness in somebody else. I've got to find it in myself. I don't know. It's, it's, it's big. It's big and it's deep and it's hard. And mm -hmm. uh, I think about when I was in my first relationship and the ways I showed up. And it's funny, when we separated, I started reading Codependency No More and Beyond mm -hmm. Codependent. And in the most codependent fucking way possible, I started to hide pages from that book in his stuff. <laughs> I was in the like, most codependent way possible, yes. <laughs> like trying to fix someone to the very yeah. end so yeah. that they could show up for me. Mm. As opposed to being like, oh. fuck, four years earlier when I was like, this person does not have the capacity. This person is amazing and they don't have the capacity for me that I kept going, it's okay, I can fix this. I studied this shit. I took psychology 101 and I was in high school and undergrad and like, I, I don't know, whatever, I can fix them. I can get them to show up for me and at but all I, costs. But you nailed it though, <laughs> when you said, I can fix them so that they can show up for me. Yeah, yeah. What you're putting kind of the pin in is also how often we do the thing that we think is loving and compassionate for the other person, but actually it's about us. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard truth that a lot of us don't want to hear, right? And that's so often what I'm saying to clients is like, it's actually a pretty controlling and manipulative way to show up in relationships. Not that it's like motivated by some kind of malice. Most of it, it's not conscious, right? We're not awful people. But when you really take a hard look at yourself and you're like, why am I doing this thing? It's not actually about them most of the time. It is about you. 
I'm trying to fix them because I need them to see me. And if they can just be this, 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 or not do this, this, and this, they'll see me better. They'll make me feel better. They'll love me better. And here's the tricky part is like doing all of that. And if you can't receive the witnessing, if you can't receive the love, you're just stuck in the cycle. I mean, you know, I may be describing myself, who knows, <laughs> and a couple of friends, all the people I ever dated where I was like, the intention of the motivation, I was like, oh yeah, we should go do a wellness seminar or some extra yoga classes so that I could, so they're more embodied, so they could show up more. Or like, we should start meditating together. All these ways in which every single partner was never there enough. The day I realized I wasn't there to even receive if they were enough was the big change maker. Yeah. 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 That's one of the hardest things. I remember an Al-Anon group because I, I kind of started, I started personal therapy as well as going to Al-Anon at the exact same time. And I remember one group where there was a woman there who was probably maybe in like her early 60s and her son was a drug addict and he was on the street and he, you know, they were in that cycle of like he would show up and ask for money and then he'd be back on the street and he would get arrested. And it was just this very obviously unhealthy kind of dynamic. And she was in Al-Anon, God bless her. And I remember her saying to me one time with such calm, at the end of the day, he is an adult. It's his choice. It's his life. Even if that means death, I am not God. I don't get to decide what his life trajectory should look like. I've had the same thing happen. I mean, I've had supervisors. I had a supervisor say to me one time, and this is like no joke, LA supervisor, he looked at me and a group of other people and he goes, I'm going to tell you something and you're a New Yorker, so I know you can take this. And I was like, oh Jesus, what does that mean? And he said, I had this client that I basically was like, she was driving me nuts. Everything was just, woe is me. And like, no matter what we did, she like wasn't taking my advice. And, you know, advice being the key word here, right? Very yeah, early yeah. on in my therapy, trying to fix this girl. And he looked at me and he said, who the fuck do you think you are? And I was like, I'm sorry, come again. He's like, you are not God. You don't get to decide that this girl shouldn't be suffering right now. That's not your choice to make. It's her life. If she wants to be unhappy, if she wants to suffer, that is her choice to make. That's not your role. And I, it was just such a like, holy shit moment where I regularly repeat that to myself when I get myself into this, like, I know better. They need to come meditate with me. They need to read this book. They need to, where yeah. I'm like, who the fuck do you think you are? It's not your life. You're not God. And it comes up often for me. I'm definitely, I'm, I got a little bit of a savior thing in me. I am, became a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, how many of us that became therapists might flash the flag of codependency? All, often. All, all of all us. Of us. <laughs> all of us. All of us who are in the healing professions of uh -huh. any sort. Heal or heal thyself. You know, yeah. You know, it's funny because I have also learned that process. I think I didn't get it quite as harshly <laughs> as you heard it, but like- Worked for you know, me when I worked, it, Yeah. I had a teacher who, when I was working in pediatrics, and I would stay late and I would kept going beyond the, time, the boundary time. And I was like, I can do this. I can fix this kid. I've done it mm. before. I see how much the parents are suffering. The kid is suffering. I can do this. And- and she said something to me that was that was much softer <laughs> than the New York version. She just said, it may not be his karma. 
And who are yeah. you to change his karma? That's it. And I was like, no, 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 that's what I'm here for. And she just looked at me and she said, no, you're not. And it was the hardest thing to ever like hear of like, I suddenly tapped into the helplessness that Oof. is actually disguised in my, you know, hidden beneath the desire to fix. Yep. That's it. That's it. I mean, the, those of us who are probably the biggest control freaks are those of us who feel the most helpless and struggle with the feeling of helplessness, right? Because as human beings, we're all in in some essence helpless. Like we don't have control over other people. We don't have control over our lives. Like ultimately, I can walk out today and get hit by a bus, right? Like we don't have control. And those of us who are the most uncomfortable with that reality are usually the ones that are the most controlling. Yeah, absolutely. So I would like to know something. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Okay. Because I want to talk a little bit about your book. To get there, I have a question for you is when you're triggered or activated by a partner, by maybe a partner you've written a book with (laughs) or a friend, like what is your favorite line to go to that is like to make it about not you? Try to understand before being understood. Uh Aha. So that's the resolve to making it about them that's my attempt. Yeah, that's my yeah. attempt. I mean, it, it it's become as somebody who I tend to be very conflict averse. I'm not. I don't take feedback very well. And again, we could always trace it back. We I know all the whys, but it's definitely been something I've always struggled with. I can go very quickly into. Yeah, I tend to be a little bit more avoidant. I can go very quickly into like, fuck you. This is why we shouldn't be together. In my head, I'm already like finding apartments and moving out. <laughs> and I mean, instantly, you know, it's it happens so fast. And I dissociate. I mean, when I'm in a conflict, I tend to like leave my body. I have found different kind of little ways to not do that and not become the victim, not put myself in such a defensive mode, but really to attempt in my whatever my capacity is in that moment to show up and be there, not only for my partner, but be there for myself and be there for the relationship that I am committed to showing up for. And so for me, that is kind of through that mantra of try to understand before being understood. And I saw that from him. I mean, he was the one that used to say that. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to take that because that works for me too. (laughs) But I'm literally repeating that mantra as he's like talking to me. And and what he doesn't know is he's looking in my eyes and behind my eyes, it's like, try to understand before being understood. Try to understand before being understood. Because it's like the only way I can keep myself present with him. Yeah. That's such a strong mantra. I usually reverse that mantra. Mm. (laughs) You're going to understand me before I, I understand you. You're going to understand you. me before I understand you. <laughs> yep, that's what most of us and do. <laughs> it's not me, it's you. It's you. It's you. I would never date a therapist, so God bless that you are partnered with a therapist. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. Oof. When, when I found out who your partner was, I was like, holy shit, two therapists in a household? I would love to be a fly on the wall. To see how the arguments play out. Because first of all, let's just normalize arguments, disputes, ruptures in relationship. All the time. Super normal, super healthy. If someone says they never fight, I go, yikes. I'm like, oh, tell me more. (laughs) Tell me me more about these two avoidant patterns. My eyes get wide. I'm like, ooh, I can't wait to talk about this more. (laughs) (laughs) But I know the super skills I have in turning it onto someone else because of my therapeutic language. And 
That is actually my mantra is you're a human, not a therapist. You're mm. a human, not a therapist. You're a human, not a therapist. Love listen, that. listen, listen. Because it's so easy. I love the mantra of like, understand before being understood because that also interrupts the pattern of making it about someone else. Because mm-hmm. that is, I mean, it's replicating the codependency too. It's like, it's totally. all about them. And it's just another way of avoiding me. Yes. Yeah. And if I, if I sit with it, I have to sit with myself and not Oof. bail out, right? Then what am I going to learn? What am I going to uncover? What's underneath that? You know what's going to happen is I'm going to actually have to sit through a rupture and then potentially a repair. And I'm going to have to prove that ego narrative wrong. Because that ego narrative is the one that's going, fuck this, fuck you. This is why we can't be in a relationship. This is why I have to do everything for myself. This is why I'm alone. Because that's my ego's narrative, right? I have to do it all by myself. I can't rely on anybody else. And so in those moments of rupture, the ego flares up and it says, see, I told you the narrative I have is right. And if I allow myself to sit with it long enough and hopefully get to the repair on the other side, my ego is kicking and screaming the entire way. But what am I doing? I'm healing that inner child that's saying rupture is bad. Rupture means annihilation. Relationships can't withstand rupture, don't have conflict, right? And so it's forced healing for myself because it's not comfortable, Mm. but I know I have to do it. Yeah. I mean, there's such magic in repair. There's such rewiring in being able Mm -hmm. to like sit with someone in conflict and know that you won't be annihilated in the vulnerability too of repair. I mean, because that that was, you know, like we can look at it at both sides. It's like the shame of the split or the deep primal sense that you will be annihilated Mm -hmm. or die because Mm -hmm. there's a split or that you have to leave. But I also found like the point of connection in the repair, that vulnerability, oof, that is scary. It's really that is, hard. It's really that hard. That is that helplessness. Kind of makes me angry. <laughs> I get <laughs> angry in vulnerability. Is. Yes. Because it's like my that inner child is just like, I cannot believe you're making me do this. Like, I can't believe, you know, that inner adolescent is like arms crossed, stomping her feet, like <sighs> I'm sorry I said that thing and that I acted that way. And I mean it, but that inner child in me is like, damn it, I hate that I have to do this because it's, I, you know, and all of those things can be true. All those conflicting emotions can be true. I can be mad, but also be sincere. I can be terrified and also be present. I mean, all this shit's going on at the exact same time, which is what is so activating. That's what's so destabilizing about that whole experience is that. There's so much shit happening at one time beneath the surface that I don't even know where to put my focus, you know? Yeah. Do you want to know one of the fun ways I avoid what sounded really good, but I avoided actual repair? Please. Oh my gosh. I became super good at taking all the responsibility. Oh, yes. And being like, you know what? Actually, that was my inner child coming to the service, taking the helm of the ship and bulldozing you. I'm going to go and process this. Don't worry about it. This is my repair. You know, like I have to yep. repair this. And in reality, it was such a beautiful way to avoid actual intimacy and the yeah. vulnerability of reconnection. Yeah. Let's just be the Oof. scapegoat and smooth yeah. everything over and get yeah. everything back to kind of copacetic as quickly as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a coping mechanism, because I don't want to feel the discomfort 
of the rupture, but I also don't want to put myself in the vulnerable real, real that goes on between two people that are really trying to repair in a meaningful way. And by the way, I want to avoid the vulnerability that comes from the potential disappointment that this person doesn't have the capacity to actually own their shit and apologize and see me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And just thinking of one other mechanism of avoiding repair, but delighting in the rupture a bit because Mm. it leads to the makeup sex. And makeup sex is not repair. (laughs) It is not repair. If you are using the energy stirred up by the rupture and then utilizing that into sex, that is not repair, my friends. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Not that I know that from experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As as I'm gritting my teeth, because I do too. I had a therapist so aptly say to me, fighting and disconnection is still connection. It's energy. Sometimes people use that as a way to connect. They use that as a way to say, do you care? Mm-hmm. Do you love me? Do you love mm-hmm. me enough to get mad about this thing and get in this, you know, this fight with me? It's like when we say with kids, right? Any attention is attention, even if it's bad mm-hmm. attention or negative attention, right? It's very similar. And it becomes a tactic because I don't know how to get my needs met in a healthy way. And so I need to be seen, as we kind of all do. So this is how I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Or if by creating chaos through rupture is the only safe space to which I can feel connection, oof, we might be addicted to drama. Might be. You should probably get <laughs> this really be. good book that I've read about no, being addicted to drama. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's by this guy, Scott Lyons. Maybe you've heard of him. Oh, I he's a real hottie. He is a hottie. <laughs> and he's smart too. Oh, oh, I'm gonna pause and absorb that. <laughs> nope, I'm not. Absorb. <laughs> nope, we're gonna just skip over it. That took me a long, a long time. I was so afraid of being a narcissist. That was the story I created of like, if I, especially when I started teaching, if I received the compliments, if I receive the encouragement of how I'm doing and all of the su- that support, then I'll become a narcissist. But it was just like, again, it was like my way of avoiding actually the vulnerability of receiving and absorbing. Did you have, and maybe you're comfortable or not comfortable saying this, but did you have any kind of narcissistic tendencies in either of your parents? No. I think it was the opposite. Mm. They were so, I had very, very attentive parents. And it did change later in adulthood where that attentiveness disappeared, mm-hmm. which I, you know, felt great in some ways mm. because all of a sudden there was boundaries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. But the attentiveness, that helicoptering, that sort of yeah. like fully supportive, full no matter what you do, you're loved, mixed with some other crazy shit, <laughs> which is kind of another version of codependency, I think. It's I was like just gonna say I mean, Yeah, yeah. Cause it's yeah. usually what I see for those of us who have that hard time, specifically with that thought, which is like, mm. I don't want to be a narcissist. I don't want to be a narcissist. What I've seen is it's usually one of two things. Either I had a parent that acted in very narcissistic ways or I had a parent that was highly codependent, which highly, not necessarily like we all are to a certain extent, right? But what yeah. I mean like highly, I mean highly. No boundaries or maybe the center of their universe or it's like a reaction to I don't want to be this thing or it, it's that pendulum again. It's like I don't want to be this thing or I need to like push against this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not both deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com. Use the discount code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. So let's go back to your parents. No, I'm just kidding. Open, open book. <laughs> I know you're an open book. I wonder if this is the time for us now that we've unpacked a lot about codependency and we go back to this idea of guilting or shaming oneself for making decisions. And I'm curious for you, I mean, I have a, a sneaking sniff or suspicion of the linkage between that, but I'm curious for you if there's any correlation. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's something about... I think the narrative, perhaps the narrative growing up, and this is not just my family, but I think culturally, that like in some essence, life should be suffering, yeah. that you're not allowed to be in a state of joy and exuberance and obsession with your life for too long because better watch out because if you are, you might be narcissistic or there might be a long fall from grace when life comes up and kicks you in the ass. You know, I come from like a Northeastern, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, blue collar, it's cold outside kind of culture. And so I think a little bit is that, like don't get too big for your britches. But also I think it's a potentially protection mechanism against that disappointment, which I think is more the codependency stuff. I think it's the like, let me guard myself against any type of disappointment by essentially keeping myself in a perpetual state of disappointment. <laughs> yes, there it is. I, I so <laughs> resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... By the way, ill. 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 Can't even say ill. Ill. Ah, can't say not ill. Ill. You're healed. <laughs> yeah. Just from saying it. It's interesting. And I don't know if this is present for you, but like when suffering is the currency for love, mm. and then when we adapt that as the currency of love for ourselves. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and where did we actually get attention? Were we most seen when things were wrong or bad? Do we parent ourselves in that same way? Or do we see that with our parents? Like I think yeah. watching the martyrdom, mm. which is so common in parenting, especially mothering, watching that as a bid for connection, as a bid for love, as a bid to be seen. And so we learn that. We take that on. 
I see it in myself and it's gross when I see it in myself, you know, like I'm just expressing out loud, you know, how much I'm suffering over here, like in an attempt for you to come over and be like, I see that you're suffering, you know, Find versus, me. versus just being like, hey, can you help with this? Because this is fucking hard and I shouldn't be doing it all myself. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm just going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and be passive aggressive and bitch about it in an attempt that you'll see me or hope that you'll see me versus just being honest about the suffering and saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's so amazing all the ways we divert ourselves from simply asking, not that it's simple, but asking someone to be with us, to just be present with us. And it's like, it's so stirring for so many of us. And we have all these different ways. I'm going to go take you to a yoga class so you could be more present so you could be with me. Or I'm going to suffer out loud so that you'll find me amongst the woes of the space, over the woes of the room, you know? And I wonder how much less suffering we could offer ourselves as a species by getting more comfortable in the discomfort of asking someone to be with us. Yeah. And I think there's also a really big learning, like even just that silly example, you know, I kept talking about it and I kept whining about it and I kept bitching about it and then I would just suck it up and I would deal with it. And when I said it to John like two days ago, three days ago, and he was like, I've been fucking telling you for eight months to buy another pair of shoes. And he, we were at a restaurant, he like pulled up the Vans website or the Zappos website and started like, you know, punching it in. And I was like, oh my God, he's doing the thing that I've, in some weird way, I've been like attempting to get him to do. And I had that like, ew moment. Oh, oh. I got home. I just fucking did it. I went on it by myself and I did the thing. And there's healing in that because- Mm. I have the power, if we're talking about this very silly example, but it does represent larger patterns, I also have the power to stop my own suffering. There are many ways where I can just be like, Vanessa, enough is enough. Fix the thing. Do the thing. Stop doing the thing, right? Whatever that is. I did it and I was like, what it took me so long? What have mm. I been waiting for? Somebody to do it for me? Somebody to give me permission to do it? Which is kind of what I think I was seeking, was permission mm. to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't need permission. I can mm-hmm. take care of me. I can give myself this thing, right? And so I'm integrating, I think, the lesson of that like silly thing. That's a much bigger lesson. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big lesson. I'm so curious, what was the crux? What was the turning point that just, I mean, I it sounds spontaneous of like all of a sudden I just did it. But if we slow it down, I'm I'm so curious, what was the magic sauce that got you over the hurdle or broke down the you know, the wall. I guess two things are coming up. One was there was a little bit more pushing and prodding by him. Mm -hmm. What I want to say, I guess what's really coming up is this idea of like, sometimes we have to get annoyed with our own shit so much, right? Like sometimes, and, and this is, I so often say to clients, like you'll do the thing when you're ready to do the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You can't force yourself into doing the thing. Oh, but I'm sick of talking about it. I get it. Sometimes I'm sick of hearing about it, but like you'll do the thing. (laughs) When you're ready to do the thing. That's the way humans work. You have to get sick of your own shit enough. The discomfort has to outweigh whatever benefit, air quote, benefit that's giving you for you to finally make the change. And until then, I don't know that the change will happen. 
you can't think your way into it. I don't think you can even like will your way into it sometimes. I do believe sometimes, again, talk about like felt sense, like that feeling in your body of like, I hate this enough. My feet were blistered enough <laughs> or I finally did the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a I sexy answer. You know what it's I mean? Not but a it's not a sexy like, answer. People don't want to hear it. They want a secret sauce. They well, want a secret sauce. Sometimes yeah. the secret sauce is fucking suffering to the point where you're like, I don't want to suffer anymore. Sorry. Now, you, yeah, spoken like a true Northeasterner. <laughs> and pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you do it. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's true. Like, there has to be enough friction yeah. to make the change. Yeah. I mean, yes, more resources, more resources, more social support systems, blah, 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 blah. But also enough friction. Mm -hmm. That's your secret sauce. That's friction is the secret sauce. That's hot. (laughs) Suffering and friction. (laughs) People on this spot, they listen, are going to be like, oh, turn it off. I'm done with this. I don't want to hear this shit. (laughs) These fucked up humans. These gently used fucked up humans. Gently used. Just gently used. Gently used. Super gently. Super gently used. I would like to do a little role playing with you. Would that be okay? Okay. Okay, I'm down. What was your first thought? Because I saw this like smirky smile. (laughs) You said role playing and I was like, oh, are we going there? Okay. (laughs) That feels a little naughty, but I'm down. Oh, I was thinking like more of improv role playing. Okay. we We could also do some role playing. My goodness. Tell where my head's at right now. <laughs> my goodness. I set you up for that, by the way, just so we're clear. You did. You did. <laughs> you totally did. I feel like one of the things you help people do is make better, real, embodied apologies. Is that fair to say? I try. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I do. So I was hoping we could role play some apologies because I find most apologies to be awful. Is that Flat. is that a good word? Flat, yeah. disconnected, mechanical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, meaningless, mechanical. And I was hoping in this realm that we, in this show rather, that we could explore a little bit what a, a decent apology would be. Okay. So I will play the victim of you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Does, does that work in this role playing? That that works. This also does something for me. So I will come up with something that you have ruptured between us. And then I would love to hear, should we do like a bad apology followed by a good apology or just go straight to the like a successful apology? Mm, let's do bad first because I feel like that'll be okay. easier for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as any human. Uh, as any human. So Vanessa... When you showed up 20 minutes late to my podcast and called me a dickhead off screen because I yelled your name too loud, it really broke something in me. I can't even do this with a straight face. It really broke something in me. It stirred, I don't know, I just felt like I will never be good enough for you. Mm. <laughs> well, I think maybe if you weren't so sensitive, <laughs> we wouldn't have had this problem. So I'm sorry that you feel that way. How many times have we said that as an apology? Okay, so that was bad apology. I'm sorry you feel this way is never an apology, by the way. Mm. Can you say that again? I was I'm sorry um, that you. you feel that way. Everybody hear oh. that. That's not an apology. I'm sorry you feel that way about me feeling that way. 
we could just go on and on in this cycle. We could just go on. Okay, okay. So that's the bad apology. What would mm-hmm. be the good apology? And what what's the secret sauce in the good apology after you do it? You know what? That was really shitty of me. I have my reasons, but honestly, they don't even matter. I was 20 minutes late. I'm sorry. That wasn't cool. I should respect your time more. And I was really flustered because I was late and I called you a name. And that was, again, that was just fucked up. I shouldn't have done that. And I was wrong and I'm sorry. Wow. That was good. When you said, I want to respect, I need to respect your time, I felt my whole body soften. Mm. And what's fucked up is I made up this scenario. You weren't late (laughs) (laughs) at all, but I still felt seen. Mm -hmm. And when I feel seen, I don't know how most people's body responses, I just soften. Same. Into the chair. You too. Yeah. 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 I think that's that's so important. Yeah. The feminine. This is the feminine's desire to be seen, right? The feminine nature in Mm. all of us wants to be seen. And so when we are truly seen, there is a softening. It's Mm. usually that feminine kind of side of us really like being gentle, you know? Mm. Mm. I think it's so important to be able to identify your body response for when you're actually met because it's so easy to not identify or recognize it and then to miss the fact that you actually had some repair. Mm-hmm. Right. And I love yeah. actually even saying it back to the person. That felt really X. I felt that in my body in this mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. I found that to I be really helpful. Mm-hmm. It reflects back to the person, not just thank you, which that's helpful too, but the impact that they had yeah. on you. Yeah. yeah. The positive impact they had. The positive impact. I think a lot of us are really good at giving feedback and criticism, but -hmm. not always the best at giving the positive feedback, myself included. Like that feels Mm -hmm. very vulnerable to do. I think sometimes when you're able to give that, it can be really helpful for the other person as like a guiding light. Like, you know, there's that post that I'm that I'm working towards. Oh, when I do that, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like in somebody's body. I want to do more of that. Yeah. And even if I didn't quote unquote accept your apology, Mm -hmm. there's something that I can still be in relation to you. Mm-hmm. I'm going, you know what? I hear those reasons. I witness you seeing me, and right now it's not enough. Yeah, and I'm I need mad. more space. And I'm still yeah. mad. And all of that's fine. And that's fine. I was just yeah. talking to a client about that before we talked this morning about like, they can be mad. <laughs> they can be mad at you. They can yeah. be pissed off at you. You can be the bad guy in their story right now. Just is, you know, and you can't run around making yourself crazy trying to fix it. Like, just let them be mad. That's it. Maybe they didn't have that space in their life, Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. To just say, I respect that you're mad. I'm here. I'm here with you while you're mad, or I'm here with you with lots of space in between us while you're mad. But either way, I'm feeling or I'm able to be here. Yeah. You ready for the next role play? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, the next one I want to role play, and and I'll let you decide who plays what part, but like okay. a role play around navigating codependency. Hmm. We can also both be codependent. Yeah. Aren't we though? Aren't we? Aren't we all codependent? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? I'm trying to think of like a good precursor. Example. I yeah. mean, I, I guess if I were to personalize it for me, I think it comes out a lot in or has, at least in the past. My resentment and my passive aggressiveness are usually my indicators Mm. that my codependency has been activated in some way. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so 
when I lash out or I have that biting little response or I feel myself just being really icky towards the other person, mm-hmm. if I have the wherewithal to stop and be like, mm, what's going on? Something happened. Mm-hmm. You're not putting words to something. You're not speaking up. You're not asking for what you need. That's a pretty good indicator for me. Mm-hmm. So to translate that into a role play, I suppose if I'm the one seeking the repair, so if I'm the one asking you for the apology, mm-hmm. I might come to you, or let's not say asking for an apology, let's say asking to be seen, asking to be witnessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might come to you and I might say, you know what? This morning I was really nasty mm-hmm. when I called you a dickhead. You did. And I'm Twice. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for that. That wasn't cool. But what I realize is that for the last few weeks, I've been really annoyed that I've been emailing you, you haven't responded to me, Mm. and I've been trying to get information from you about today's meeting, and I just felt like you were ignoring me. And I I feel like I'm I'm resentful for that. I was a little pissed off. Like I felt really overlooked and like you just didn't care. Mm. Oh, is it my turn? I really recognize that as you reflected back. Mm. I want to just honor the fact that you didn't feel seen and recognized with all the energy and the effort and the time that you put into contacting me that I didn't return. And while I can't take that back now, I'm really here with you now in this moment, accepting that that is something I did. And I'm wondering if there's anything I can do to support you in this moment or in these moments of the past that could offer some repair to what I did. I have got to say, I don't think I've ever done, outside of like school and like working with gestalt stuff, I don't know that I've ever actually done this. I am feeling this in my body. I am like uncomfortable in the vulnerability of this apology, even though it's not an apology. This is fascinating. (laughs) I've never done this either. I've never done it on the podcast. I've I was like, this morning I woke up and I was like, I want to role play with Vanessa. Jesus, y'all listening? Like, we need to do some more role playing because this is vulnerable. What I want to say to continue the role play is actually, I don't know that there's anything you can do moving forward other than just I want to recognize that you acknowledging it and owning Mm it feels like enough for me in this moment. And so, thank you for acknowledging it and not defending yourself or making an excuse. Mm. Mm. My pleasure. (laughs) Shall we do our final role play of the the day? Let's do it. All right. I would like to role play as a couple, two therapists. This should feel familiar. (laughs) (laughs) I love giving you so much shit because I would never date a therapist. And God bless you. It's a lot. Oof. <laughs> I have so much empathy and none at all at the same time. Isn't role playing supposed to be that I get to get out of my daily existence, not to stay I in know. my daily existence? <laughs> <laughs> I know we are mirroring some shit here. All right. This is our last role play that I would like to role play. And this actually came up in a, in a session I was supporting recently of having the awkward conversation about introducing something really spicy into the relationship. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Am I the one introducing or are you the one introducing? What if we both are introducing? I'm open. I just wanted to make it awkward already by not knowing. (laughs) Interesting. I also think it depends on what your definition of spicy is. (laughs) 
I guess we'll have to find out because okay. everyone has different definitions of spicy. I mean, your spicy might be my mild. That's true. That's true. Your okay. hot sauce might be my water. That's true. All right. <laughs> Damn, Phil called out. Okay. <laughs> I just got back from Berlin last night, so let's do this. No, just kidding. <laughs> let's do it. Okay, go. You're going first because I'm following your going- lead on this one. Oh, okay. Hey, Vanessa, I I'm wanted to connect with you about something in our relationship. Is this a good time? This sure. is my favorite line. This I'm is my automatically favorite. anxious, but yes, it's, it's a good time. I hear that you're anxious. I recognize that I'm not yet being clear as to what I want to talk about. And I just mm-hmm. want to first start by saying like, it's something I'm excited about. Okay. So we're okay. We're okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for checking in around that. Okay. Yeah, we're okay. <laughs> that, in fact, that makes my anxiety feel a little bit less. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. What I would hope for, dream for in this conversation and connection with you is like, just to see where we can start from a place of openness around it. And so like, I imagine like, as if there's a little less vulnerability, excuse me, a little less <laughs> anxiousness, there might be more like openness to what I want to talk about. And what I want to talk about is adding something kind of spicy or erotic or jazzy <laughs> into our connection with each other. Okay. I'm just noticing for myself, like, ooh, I got a little butterfly inside. Okay. And before I, like, I don't have any exact, you know, ideas right away, but I'm just curious if there's anything in you that also wants to talk about adding anything into the relationship. Well, I think that my go-to, and this is a real go-to, not just a role-playing go-to, my go-to in a scenario like this would be to manage my defensiveness and my feelings of not enoughness Mm. that come up when somebody comes to me and says, what we're doing is great, but it could be better. That's the real reels is like when we're trying to add something in that it's not coming from a deficit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So acknowledging that I'm going to have to kind of manage that throughout this conversation, I hear you and I'm, I'm open to what your ideas are and you know what curiosities you have. I know for me as somebody who runs a little bit more avoidant, is somebody who you know has always really been able to compartmentalize physical connection and emotional connection. They don't always have to overlap for me. The idea of an open relationship has always been something I've been curious about ever since I was young. And so I think we could also talk about that. Thank you for sharing that with me. I thank you for first sharing like the part that comes up that's like reflexive and protective around there's a deficit. And I want to honor that that part that's coming up and, and also just share for me I'm really happy and satisfied and I'm an explorer. Like that's part of what makes me feel alive is the continual progressive curiosity. And I also want to just be reflective back and honest. Like when you said open relationship, I had the same defensive response of like, am I not enough? So I just want to be real honest about like that stirs something up in me too. And I'm in your honesty about like how you're going to manage and attend to your process and and defensiveness, potential defensiveness, I'm going to do the same in me and just be like, ooh, 
that little kid in me that doesn't feel like was ever enough and was always picked last in sports, like I'm still here in relationship with you. Like I'm just telling that that little kid that like actually I'm still the one chosen. Ooh. This is getting real, Vanessa. I know. I'm just I kind of want to call my therapist and have her come <laughs> in with us. <laughs> But Our I, relationship I is great. Yeah. I, I think what we're doing really well actually is showing how we're the start great. of that conversation could go. Yeah. And I think yeah. like this specific topic, what I love about it is it's you're not going to have one conversation. It's going to be multiple conversations and it's going to be multifaceted and multi-layered, and it's uncomfortable for both parties, especially in the realm of like sexuality. I mean, we're such a repressed yes. culture. You know, yes. and so we're made to feel shame about having any kind of desire that doesn't fit outside a certain way of doing things. But we're also made to feel shame if we don't have desires I know. that fit outside of it too, by the way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, my spicy was literally going to be saying, can we hold hands in public? <laughs> <laughs> uh. I really misread that one. Where were you going with that? No, no, no. If the role play had continued, I would have come up with something spicy because it's, it's and, and again, I think what you said before is we'd have to navigate what is spicy for me and what is spicy yeah. for you. And I use the word spicy and, and we can substitute that with like energizing or exploratory or whatever it is. And I want to go back to you because this could also be like, Yes, this is a good example of how the, the role play or the, the conversation could start. But it also could be an example of where we pause and go, whoa, that was already significant. Mm-hmm. How about we just go take a walk? Yeah, let's sit with that for a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's sit with that for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That goes back to that sacred pause we were talking about before. Of just when you honor the sacred pause, you're not going to flood your system. Yes. Yes, and we don't have to have figure it all out right now in this moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. In fact, it goes back to that the conversation of layers. You know, mm-hmm. that the, we have so many layers of cells, we have skin and we have muscle and like conversations and connections and deepening in relationships and any capacity should follow the same pattern of nature that we are, layers. Right. Agreed. Mm. Yeah. Oof. Well, with that, my love, I want to just say thank you for being such an amazing, gently used human (laughs) and coming onto the show and sharing your deep wisdom. And where can people find more about you? And by the way, we named your book, but we named it sort of in, in context without naming it, naming it, which is, it's not me, it's you. Right. Which is a fabulous, a fabulous book. I highly recommend it. I love the title. I use the title often. (laughs) And most of my relationships. But it's a brilliant book about just navigating relationships. And what's really special is it's done through the medium of two therapists who are actually in the work and know the work. Yeah. It was fascinating to write. Let me tell you. We could write a part (laughs) two. Maybe we will. I look forward to it. Where can people... Yeah. Get to know you more. So Instagram mostly, Vanessa S. Bennett. And then TikTok, I'm on there as the Coda Yoda, doing a lot of the same stuff. (laughs) The Coda Yoga. (laughs) The book, like you said, It's Not Me, It's You, which I co-wrote with my partner, John, the angry therapist, aka my website, VanessaBennett.com. I also have a podcast, Cheaper Than Therapy, 
the podcast with my amazing co-host Danae. So check us out there as well. Great content on that podcast. And you're going to be on there soon enough. I am. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. I hope we do role playing there as well. (laughs) I'm going to tell Danae, we got to do this. She's going to be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) We encourage everyone to role play. I'm taking it away. I mean, that's my biggest takeaway is role playing and navigating codependency because we all we all got a little bit of it. We all got a little least. bit. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, love. It was a just a I was going to say a blessing to have you on the show. I will say it's been a blessing to have you on the show, and you are so wonderful. And look forward to uh, connecting more soon. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUsed.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.